This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Dr. Robert Alaber is Professor Emeritus of International Economics and Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, where he spent most of his academic career. He served as a senior economic advisor for the Agency for Economic Development, the U.S. Department of State. He predicted the Icelandic banking crisis 18 months before it happened, and he is the co-author of the 5th, 6th, and 7th editions of one of the foremost texts studying the history of financial markets, manias, panics, and crashes. He joins me now for a closer look. Bob, Fed policymakers agreed to raise their lending rate for the third time in six months, and apparently they plan one more hike in 2017, and three more in 2018. Janet Yellen feels the economy is doing well. Do you share her optimism? Yes. Actually, I think the economy has been stronger than Janet Yellen has believed it to be. We've been approaching full employment for 18 months, chugging along at 2 2.5% annual growth rate. The signs for help wanted multiply, multiply. Wage rates are increasing, and I fear we're likely to have a major shock in the financial markets unless the Fed moves interest rates up at a more rapid pace than it now intends. Are you suggesting that their intention, as we understand it, is not as aggressive as you would have them be over the coming months? I think they've uh, come to the party late. They've been slow to recognize how strong many of the geographic sectors of the economy are. They've been slow to recognize the strength in the auto market and the strength in the, in the housing market. Now, you're well known for having predicted the economic crisis of 2008 when you saw the large number of construction cranes in Iceland in 2007. Now, the number of cranes in Iceland today is at the same level as then. It's been 10 years. Is there another financial crisis brewing for 2018? Crisis could develop in any of a number of countries, but the most likely case of a financial crisis uh, would be in China, uh, which has lived with increasing imbalances for at least 10 years. One of the massive imbalances in China is in the housing market. So house prices in the major cities uh, will be 10 to 15 times annual income. Often the implicit debt servicing costs attached to a property will be equal to the income of the owner of that property. So prices have been rising 
because they have been rising. And when they tend, when the increase in prices tends to slacken, the government, fearful of the consequences, provides bundles and bundles of cheap credit, um, and the house prices take off again. The takeoff in house prices leads to increases in stock prices. As uh, quiet as it is today, what happened to volatility, especially with all of the hot spots in the world and what appears to be chaos in the White House? That's a real puzzle. I, I don't have a good, good answer for you, but let's just say the volatility is just over the horizon, that there is a, a sense of premonition that we are far from an equilibrium, even though many of asset prices, stock prices, even currency prices, uh, appear to be at equilibrium values. In your opinion, are boom and bust cycles simply inevitable and impossible to stop? Well, cycles are inevitable. Uh, they can be stopped. We should spend time analyzing why have the booms and busts been so frequent in the last 35 years. We've had at least four waves of banking and currency crises. The first was in the early 1980s, and that crisis involved Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, and 10 other developing crises, 10 other developing countries. The second wave, a much smaller wave, was in the early 1990s and involved Japan and two of the Nordic countries, Sweden and Finland. The third crisis is one that has a it's its own name, the Asian financial crisis that began in July of 1997 and initially involved Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Indonesia, and then spread to South Korea. And the fourth crisis is one that began 2007-2008, involved the United States, Iceland, Ireland, Spain, Britain, and several other countries. So there is something generic that is happening out there. These are not random events. Each of these crises was preceded by a boom, often a world boom, and the boom was associated with an increase in investment inflows into each of these countries. We'll continue this conversation with Professor Emeritus of International Economics and Finance at the University of Chicago, with Dr. Robert Aliber in just a moment. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 12 minutes past the hour. This is a closer look at renowned economist and distinguished author, University of Chicago, Professor Emeritus Robert Aliber. He's consulted for the Federal Reserve Board. So let's talk about the recent Fed meeting decisions. I'm Arthur Levitt. Bob, Bill Gross is warning that all markets are increasingly at risk from low interest rates, aging populations, and global warming costs, all inhibiting economic growth. Do you buy into his pessimism? question falls under the heading, when does history begin? So if we take the 207-208 crisis as a given, 
and assume that history began about that time when real estate prices fell very sharply in the United States, Britain, Spain, Ireland, Iceland. Then the global economy has recovered. Global growth rate is now 3%, the highest that it's been in nine years. We've had nine years of uninterrupted growth. And by and large, there are not that many extended imbalances. I pointed out there's a a massive imbalance in China. I would say there's a modest imbalance in international payments. And it may be that we can point to other countries where property prices seem extraordinarily high relative to rental incomes. But the current situation appears very different from that in in 2006, 2007, uh, when property prices have been uh, increasing at 20 or 30 percent a year uh, in a number of countries. So it's hard to identify non-sustainable uh, imbalances in the global economy. And in that sense, I'm less pessimistic than Bill Gross. Now, the nation's unemployment rate fell to a 16-year low of 4.3% last month, yet people think there aren't enough jobs. What's the disconnect in your judgment? One of the problems is that there's a misfit between the skills of the labor force uh, and the skills that employers demand, and that reflects shortcomings or inadequacies in our training systems, our apprenticeship systems, uh, and the like. But that's a problem that has been with us for a very long time. And when there is a shortage of skilled labor, employers that need skilled labor figure out some way to train the labor that they need and upgrade their labor skills. And it appears as if we haven't quite moved toward or past that transition in which the responsibility for increasing the skills of the labor force, members of the labor force, falls to the firms that are short of skilled labor. That's a fascinating point. And worldwide, five people have as much wealth as $3.75 billion people combined. In the U.S., the share of income going to the top, 1% has more than doubled in the last 35 years. Should, is there something we can do about inequality? Of, uh, and what, what might that be? Well, there are lots of things to do about equality, and there are lots of things to, to do about the data. So let's assume we made your comparison on what has happened to the shares of income of the top 1%, the top one-tenth of 1%, etc. But we chose a different starting date. And we chose the starting date of, let's say, the beginning of 1970 rather than the beginning of 1980. Now, what, what difference would we observe? 1980, especially 1982, uh, was the onset of a marvelous, sustained increases in stock prices, bond prices, and real estate prices that's continued for more than 35 years. But if we advance the starting date from 1980 to 1970, 
and incorporate the changes in the prices of stocks and bonds in 19 that have occurred since 1970, the rate of increase of wealth has been much, much less rapid. And that's because stock prices fell very, very sharply in 1970s, and bond prices fell very, very sharply. This isn't an explanation for why wealth has become more (coughs) skewed. It has become more skewed, but much of the measurement of the skewedness reflects the choice of 1980 as a starting date. Um, And when I see the choice of 1980 as a starting date, I often ask myself the question, is this um, an exercise in persuasion uh, or in analysis? Yeah, I suppose you could have picked uh, 1929 as well and have even more dramatic consequences. Different sort of starting dates, and of course, uh, people who are concerned with this very legitimate policy issue might want to provide us with three or four different starting dates and tell us why they prefer one or two uh, rather than three or four. In any event, we can use tax policy, we can use educational policy, and we can use trade policy. Now, one of the things that has happened with the decline in the cost of transportation and communication is that the supply of unskilled labor has now become an effective supply. If American consumers wish to to, uh, purchase something, a product that has been made with unskilled labor, the cost of production is likely to have been much lower in a foreign country in Mexico or China or Indonesia or Bangladesh than in the United States. He is Professor Emeritus of International Economics and Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and a prolific author whose most recent book is the seventh edition of the classic history of financial markets, Manias, Panics, and Crashes. Dr. Robert Alibro will return for part two of this interview next week at this same time. By the way, if any of you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. This week, we continue our closer look at Professor Robert Alaber. He joined the faculty of the University of Chicago Booth School of Business in 1965 and retired in 2004 as Professor of International Economics and Finance. He has consulted for the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. He is a distinguished author whose 
classic history of markets, manias, panics, and crashes, was recently updated for a seventh edition with observations on the Chinese economy. Bob, is there anyone in the present administration that you view as having particularly constructive ideas for the economy? That's a marvelous question. Uh, The Trump administration has been very slow in hiring economists. uh, Kevin Hassett has been uh, installed as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, though the Council appears to have a much smaller role than in um, previous years. The Secretary of the Treasury knows financial markets uh, very well. Uh, The Trump administration has been slow in filling the second-tier economic policy issues. There's a... um, The press chatter is that uh, Randy Quarles will be appointed to the Federal Reserve Board, perhaps as vice chair of the board, with the portfolio of uh, regulation. And uh, he's a very distinguished lawyer uh, with with a great knowledge of the history and scope of financial reg- regulation. Uh, Marvin Goodfriend, who had been a colleague at Chicago as a visitor many years ago, and most recently was at Carnegie Mellon, is also to be appointed uh, to the board. I may differ from Marvin on some policy issues or, or on economic values, but he's a very serious uh, economist. Pollster Nate Silver says he can show that the failures of the right-wing parties in Austrian elections, as well as the Netherlands, France, and the UK, can be traced to what he calls a Trump effect. He's seeing the reality of Trump and fallout from Brexit help put the brakes on right-wing nationalism. Do you agree with that? I haven't seen the analysis, and I'd like to think about it. Does does seem to me that the Brexit vote and the Trump vote reflect that a large number of workers in what had been traditional industrial areas uh, in the northwest in England, or sometimes called the black country, uh, and in our traditional manufacturing states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, the workers in these states feel that they have uh, lost their jobs uh, and that they have fallen behind. Um, And one or several analyses suggest that Trump's rather slender uh, electoral college victory reflected his modest majority in four or five of these industrial states. So the similarity between the U.S. and the U.K. is that the cities have done very well and have been growing, but the countryside, and the countryside is where the manufacturing plants are located, the countryside has fallen behind. 
I just finished reading a marvelous little book on uh, Changetown. Uh, it's the story of an industrial town in southern Wisconsin. Its largest employer had been a General Motors plant that had been there since the 1920s. The General Motors plant closed, and the, uh, that meant that the several of the supplier plants, plants that produce the upholstery for the GM vehicles, etc., closed. And this town went from having a large number of workers with upper-middle-class incomes to a very large number of workers with very low, low middle-class incomes. It's a story of how the loss of competitiveness uh, can lead to a massive civic rot. Very sad. We'll continue this conversation with Dr. Robert Alaber, Professor Emeritus, University of Chicago, in a moment. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. It's 12 minutes past the hour. This is a closer look at University of Chicago Professor Emeritus Robert Alaber, a prolific author. He's an expert on international monetary issues as well as the history of market cycles. Bob, turning to China and North Korea, in the seventh and most recent edition of your classic book, Manias, Panics, and Crashes, you updated China's financial situation. Uh, what's, what's happening with respect to their economy at this point? Well, the, the, there are two principal developments in the Chinese economy since the words that were written for the that chapter on China in the seventh edition. Uh, the growth rate has growth rate has slowed, has slowed, and and the government suggests the growth rate is six and a half to seven percent a year. I am very skeptical. The second is that the financial imbalances have become larger and larger and larger. And so the issue I think for China is how long can it continue to sustain its growth rate, 5 6 or 7% a year, on the basis of very rapid growth in, in credit. We've been, we have observed that there have been massive capital outflows. Chinese investors wish to move their money to Hong Kong, Singapore, London, the United States. Some of the money movement is associated with the purchase of real estate, some is associated with the purchase of foreign firms. The head of the largest insurance company in China, Anfang, this company bought the Waldorf Astoria Hotel several years ago. Uh, this gentleman uh, is now under some form of house arrest, etc. Now, what we're going to see when asset prices begin to fall is massive in China, this massive financial distress, and then a large number of people will be accused of corruption because the firms that they <clears throat> managed and worked for 
uh, will have financial liabilities much in excess of their assets. This is inevitable, and it can be delayed or postponed, uh, but it cannot be forestalled uh, indefinitely. And that's the next big shock for the global economy. Well, that is indeed a big shock, which leads me to the question of a likelihood of a hot war between the U.S. and China within the next 10 years. What would you favor in terms of whether that is a likelihood? Well, my, uh, that, that's a hard one. It's, it, as the saying goes, it's above my, above my pay grade. But my sense is the Chinese will be so preoccupied uh, in the efforts to calm their population, individuals who will, will have seen 30 or 40 percent of their financial wealth more or less evaporate, uh, that they will be much more concerned with ensuring peace uh, within Chinese cities uh, and factories. Uh, rather than in uh, external aggression. Is North Korea, in the light of their paltry economy, uh, likely to avoid military uh, adventures? Uh, who trades with them now, legally or otherwise, other than China? Well, North Korea is, on a very slender industrial base, has been successful in developing uh, nuclear weapons and weapons delivery system, but my guess is it has two days of reserves um, and that they have a much better knowledge of how slender their reserves are than almost anyone else. So much of what we hear from North Korea is really bluster, that they would not have the, the supplies of fuel, the supplies of munitions, uh, etc., uh, it would make the wars of the Middle East uh, seem infinitely long by comparison. And when we talk about the Middle East, we talk about the Seven-Day War or the Five-Day War, uh, etc. Now, Janet Yellen has said that the Fed isn't sure why, despite a sharp fall in the rate of unemployment, the rate of consumer price inflation is lagging behind the Fed's target rate of 2%. Uh, why? Well, I'm not sure, but perhaps I should take Janet shopping with me sometime. <laughs> that will uh, help her better understand that the gap is smaller than she thinks that it is. The, uh, but we've had remarkable productivity gains in, in many products. Um, now, it's true, airline fares are down. It may be down 10 or 15 percent, but when I'm charged for the sandwich um, and charged for packing that bag, then the decline in the airline fare may appear far less sharp than it otherwise would have uh, been. And when I think of the automobiles, uh, prices um, uh, clearly going up at, at a very significant rate, although the the quality of the automobile has improved Im immensely. So it's very hard to make these price and quality comparisons for an advanced economy. My sense is the prices have been rising 
significantly more than one or two percent. I keep my eyes on just one or two sort of standard items. How much does it cost to park my car in a particular location, uh, et cetera, et cetera. He joined the faculty of the University of Chicago Booth School of Business in 1965, retired in 2004 as professor of international economics and finance. He's been a consultant to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, and he recently co-authored the seventh edition of the classic history of financial markets, Manias, Panics, and Crashes. Professor Robert Albert, thanks for joining us. By the way, if any of you in the audience have comments about this program or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. 